If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 23. Uh, this is on page 884 in the black ones around you. If you are a guest with us, let me say a special welcome to you. If I haven't had the chance to say hello or meet you, I would love that chance afterwards uh, if, if, if that works out. Um, but uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, we're continuing through our study of the book of Luke. We've got four weeks left and we will be all wrapped up over those four weeks. We're really going to kind of dive into talking about some almost some theological emphasis of a couple of things. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the cross. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. Next week, we're going to be talking about the resurrection and not just, you know, the proof of it, but like, what does it mean for us? And then the next week, we're going to be talking about glorification. Um, what, what will our resurrected bodies be like? And, and so then we're going to have to deal with, with heaven. Like, what is heaven if I drop dead right now? Or what's the new heavens and the new earth? What's the difference in that? And maybe try to clean up a little bit of maybe some false understanding we have about, uh, heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And then the next week, the ascension. All right. What is the theological significance of Jesus ascending into heaven? So that's kind of what is going, you know, coming over the next couple of weeks. But this week we've got the cross. And so just by kind of getting started, how many of you in here have on a cross somewhere on your body right now? Whether it's an, a necklace or an earring or a tattoo or on your clothing, hands. All right. Keep them up. How many of you, in addition to that, have a cross hanging on a wall or something at your house. Right, okay. And I mean, we've got one right here, a great big one. All right, and that's all good and right. No, you know, issues with that. We decorate our houses with church, with, with crosses. We, we decorate ourselves with crosses. We, we hang them on the walls. We'll put them over our baby's crib, just a cross hanging up everywhere. And that's fine. That's good and that's right. There's rich symbolism there, okay? Because Jesus has taken... What is broken, he makes things beautiful. Uh, things that are intended for evil, he brings good out of them. Um, he brings life out of death. So I get all that symbolism. But at its very core, the cross, if you go back to the Roman Empire and think for a minute, the cross was a torture device. All right? It was a device for capital punishment. And so for the people of Jesus' day, stepping into our culture, it would be like we have an electric chair hanging up here. It would be like those of you who have on jewelry today have a syringe for lethal injection hanging around your neck or on your ears. That you have a guillotine hanging over your precious baby's crib. You have a noose or a stake for burning someone alive. That's what the cross is. It is a torture device. It is a device for capital punishment. And so for people of that day to walk in and see a cross hanging up here, all of you guys having crosses on your neck, go to your house, they are freaked out. It's a house of horrors. Crosses everywhere. And again, I get the symbolism of that. I'm not knocking that. Someday when we finish building out this entire campus, I hope we have a tower that's got a cross, like a steeple on top. That's something that I hope that we do. So I get this, the symbolism. I'm all for the symbolism. I'm not knocking that. It's rich. It's significant. But as we approach talking about the cross today, I think a lot of times we forget what it was and what it is and what Jesus went through on it. 
And not just what we can see that the Romans do, but the invisible wrath of God that we don't see that's poured out on Him in those moments. Because the cross just by itself, it's a torture, it's a torture device, it's a device of capital punishment, but just by itself, Jesus' cross, just humanly speaking, isn't really anything out of the ordinary. Sarah and Claire went to Rome this past spring, and while they were there, they biked the Appian Way, which is like a death trap because apparently there's cars on it and we didn't know that, but they made their way, they're safe, they made it home. But in, in, if you know your history, in reality, the Appian Way is where the Romans crucified 6,000 followers of the gladiator Spartacus in an uprising. 6,000 of them along this one road just to, hey, you mess with us, this is what's going to happen. The Romans crucified people all the time. As a matter of fact, at the height of their empire, historians tell us that they would crucify around across the, to- the whole empire, if you add it all up, about 500 people a day as a deterrent. Don't mess with us. And so humanly speaking, crucifixion was not something that uncommon. But the crucifixion of Jesus shook eternity. And that's what we've got before us this morning. The cross of Christ. Page 884, Luke chapter 23. What I want to do is I want to read the text. And then I want to come back to it and just make our way through it and, and talk about what we don't a lot of times talk about. And that is like how it went down. What, it, what, what happened. So the, the violence, the bloodiness, the pain, we'll deal with that today. And then we'll talk about like what it means. What, what is the point of the cross? And so that, 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 if you're taking notes, those are just going to be our two points. Number one, the practicalities of Christ's crucifixion. And number two, the point of Christ's crucifixion. So that's all we're going to do. And so let's read together. We'll make our way through this whole um, text, through the practicalities first, how it went down. And so chapter 23, we'll pick it up in verse 26. I'll read it in its entirety, then we'll come back. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. But they do these things when the wood is green. What will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. And so going back to verse 26, this is the Via de la Rosa, all right, the road of sorrows. He's on the road to the cross, but we've got to make sure as we understand the crucifixion of Jesus that by this time, as they start marching Him towards the cross, He has already suffered horribly. It all began in the Garden of Gethsemane when He knew what was coming. And He prayed, Lord, take this cup from Me. If there's any other way, take this cup, but not My will, Your will be done. He prayed, My soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. And He's sweating drops of blood in dread of what's about to come upon Him for us. When he's before the Sanhedrin, he's repeatedly punched and slapped in the face. The guards, they punch, they slap, they mock him, and they call prophesy out to his Jesus who it was that hit you. Under Pilate, he's scourged. And this is hard to talk about. 
when scourging was done, the way this was done was with, was with something called a flagellum whip or the cat of nine tails. And what this is is a short whip consisting of a bunch of different thongs of leather that are all plated with pieces of sharp bone and heavy lead like a musket ball to give it some weight and some force. And the ancient Jewish historian Eusebius described a typical scourging this way. So this is a, a guy who saw these. People were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. And so people were tied to a post and the heavy whip was brought down upon their shoulders and their back and their legs again and again and again. And so there's Jesus, the King of the universe, the one who made these people who were whipping him, the one who created the resources by which they made the whips who were whipping, and the one who controlled the cells in their bodies and pumped blood through their hearts so that they could beat him. There he is taking this for us. And the sharp fragments of bone would grab in his skin and as the scourger yanked the whip away, it yanks flesh away. And the musket ball heavy leads, they begin by just pummeling the flesh and bruising it until his flesh is taken away and away and away. Bone ribs begin to be able to be cracked as these hit. And this goes on for some time. Until finally the skin on the back is hanging down like long ribbons and tissues exposed and it's just a bloody, mangled, unrecognizable mess. And when it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, then the beating stops. And so the flagellum has left Jesus' bones and cartilage showing. He's losing blood. But the soldiers just continue their mocking according to the book of Mark. They dress him in a purple robe, which is no longer purple. It's red because of the amount of blood that is on it. They place a crown of thorns on his head and they beat it with rods down into his scalp. And this was all in fulfillment of Isaiah 52.14. That his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is what Jesus did for you and for me. And this is just the beginning. Finally, bored with beating, they lead our Lord, the King of the, the, King of the universe, not just the Jews. They lead Him out to His crucifixion. Kent Hughes writes, the grim customs of the crucifixion of the march towards a place of crucifixion, were well known to every Roman subject. Jewish was, Jesus was placed in the center of a quartirian, a company of four Roman soldiers. And the patigulum, the cross beam of the cross, weighing perhaps as much as 100 pounds, was placed on his shoulders. As Jesus stumbled along the route to Golgotha, a soldier preceded him carrying a wooden placard that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
And so they led Jesus, as they would also all prisoners, along the longest route possible as a deterrent to crime. This is what will happen to you. And crucifixions, as I said, they were so common that the folks, as they began this, they probably, it was probably just business as usual, just another one that's coming on and you go, you know, execute this guy. And so they're on their way. And remember, Jesus was a carpenter in the prime of his life. He's 33 years old. So he's used to lifting heavy objects. He knew how to put his back into something and just go to work. And so this patigulum that weighs maybe 100 pounds, the cross beam, would be no problem for him to carry. Except he's been beaten for hours. He's lost pints of blood. He has no hide virtually on his back. Muscles are ripped and torn. And so the soldiers are wondering if he's even going to make it to Golgotha. And so they grab a man from modern day Libya, which is in North Africa, and tell him to carry the cross. And just stepping out of the chronology of like how this is going down, just to, like that struck me this week. Just picture that image for a minute. Here you have a man carrying the cross underneath the weight of that cross following His Savior up a hill. That is Christianity. We carry our cross and we follow our Savior wherever He goes. And like our Savior, we will be mocked. And like our Savior, we will be humiliated. And like our Savior, we will be hated at times. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so verse 26, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now these ladies are not the ladies who, like, these aren't his disciples. They're there But these are not. This is a completely different set of people. These are ladies who lived in Jerusalem who would go to Roman executions when they were crucifying people and mourn. This is just what they did. And they would carry with them opiates and other drugs to try to offer to them to try to reduce the pain as they were on the cross. Jesus, of course, denied all that. Sour what he took none. But watch what Jesus does in the midst of unspeakable pain. After being beaten, now he's on the, he's not even thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. Verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, What will happen when it is dry? And so what Jesus just did is He gave them a prophecy and a proverb. And the prophecy is something that He's been talking about all the way back in Luke 21, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It is going to be utterly decimated. And we know AD 70 it happened. 
And he's saying, that's coming for you. You're going to wish that you weren't here. You're going to wish that you weren't alive. It's going to be bad. But he, and then he gives them a proverb about the intensity of that destruction by saying, listen, if they're doing this to me right now, one who's innocent, Greenwood, then what is it going to be like when God allows and unleashes His wrath through the Romans on a wicked nation? Drywood. And so they keep walking in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals went on his right and went on his left. And so they arrive at a place called the skull, Golgotha. An exhausted Simon of Cyrene drops the crossbar, Jesus is thrown down on top of it and they drive spikes through His hands. And then they attach it to the vertical piece. And they take His feet and they lay them on top of one another and they drive a spike through those splintering tarsals and nerves. And then they raise Him into place and thus begins Hours of torture, of struggling upward to get a breath before collapsing again into the nails that are holding you in place. Because the way you die on the cross is one of two ways. Either you bleed to death or you suffocate because you can't get a breath. And understand, these crosses, like they didn't build a new one every time they crucified somebody. These are used. These are disgusting. Scores of people have died on these. They're covered in blood. They're covered in feces. They're covered in urine. They're covered in bodily fluids. And the vertical portion's not like polished and smooth. It's been chopped up so that it's splintery. And so every time that you struggle to get that breath against your back that virtually has no hide, you're scratching up and driving splinters into your mutilated back. And as you hang there with flies covering your blood-covered body, gnats swarming into your eyes, and you can't swipe, vultures circling, ravens coming down, maybe picking at you, pecking at you, and convulsing and cramping because of the pain. This is what Jesus was enduring. And He did so as a criminal dying among criminals to fulfill Scripture. He was numbered with the transgressors. And maybe these folks were even members of Barabbas' band of insurrectionists. And so Jesus is on the cross. He's being mocked. He's forgiving these soldiers for just carrying out orders. Father, they don't know what they're even doing. Forgive them. He's being railed at by one of the criminals. He's giving salvation and the promise of paradise to the other. And that brings us to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours. That's basically noon to three. While the sun's light failed. And so 33 years earlier, 
There had been dazzling light during the night at the birth of Jesus. And then here was darkness at noontime when He died. But what happened? What was actually happening during those three black hours? I'll try to use an illustration. All illustrations break down. But has anybody ever used a magnifying glass to maybe when you're a kid, you know, try to get some leaves to smoke or uh, kill a bug? Anybody ever done that? Take that magnifying. If you turn it just right, the sun it'll intensify all the sun's power into a singular point, and you can burn stuff. That's what happened to Christ on the cross. All of our sin was focused on Him and all of the eternal and infinite wrath of God against wickedness and against evil and against sin was concentrated into a singular person and it poured down on Him in all its burning fury. And for three hours, wave after wave of our sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. And again and again during these three hours, His soul recoiled and convulsed as all of our lies, all of our infidelity, all of our hatreds, all of our jealousies, all of our prejudices, all of our murders, all of our lusts, all of our pride, was poured upon Christ's purity. And Jesus, in full lucid consciousness, took on your sins and mine and bore them with a unity of understanding that it has to be done in order to forgive them and a pain of doing it that we cannot fathom. And again, this is just, folks, do not focus just on the visible ruthlessness of the Romans, but the invisible wrath of God against sin. That's what's being poured out on Jesus. He's being forsaken by the Father. And so as Jesus hung there on Good Friday and was slaughtered, in that moment, He's dying for your sins. And they grab Him. They beat Him. They spit on Him. They yank the beard out of His face. They slap Him. They mock Him. They rip the skin off of His back. They drive nails into His hands and into His feet. They hang Him on a cross. And while the very people He came to save come out to watch Him bleed out just drowning in His own blood, what's happening in that moment is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God is making Jesus who knew no sin to become our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what's happening in that moment. All fall, we've been talking about Martin Luther. He called this the great exchange. That in this moment... Because of Jesus, God's anger and wrath that we deserve has been taken away and love that we do not deserve has been given to us. That's the exchange. 
To the point that now, Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. He took it for us. He, he took it. Because of His great mercy and love. And friends, this is the point of the cross. This is the whole point. The cross is a declaration of our sinfulness and God's love for us. That God is holy and He is righteous and He is just and He is good and He is also loving and merciful and kind and that God found a way to not deny His holy character, not deny His right hatred against sin and evil and wickedness, but also not sentence us to eternal damnation, but provide a way of salvation. And that way is the person of Jesus. He was forsaken by God so that you're not. He did this for you. He did this for me. Just as it had been prophesied 700 years earlier, listen to the words of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like I read that from mine. My sin. What I did and do. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. And when Jesus died, it wasn't because of the normal progressive weakening of the body. Remember they were shocked at how quickly he died. Now what what Jesus did is he experienced and he bore in his body the full wrath of God. And when it was over, he said so. John 19. It is finished. I've borne it all. And there's no more to bear. And so flip over to page 984 in the Bibles around you. Colossians 2, real quick. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. 
I want to read that to you. I want to read something to you. And then I want to try to help you see something. And, and I want you to f- feel it for yourself. So Colossians 2, 13 through 14, page 984. Here's what it says. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so remember how they had put an inscription over uh, Jesus' head on the cross that said, this is the King of the Jews? Well, that was Pilate just kind of tweaking and, and, and doing a little play because you know, he, he did not like the, root, the, the, the religious establishment. He thought that Jesus really shouldn't be crucified, but he gave in to the will of the people and so we had that put up there, all right, to kind of annoy them. But 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 in actuality, what was like the idea of something being over someone's head like that was very very normative. When when people were crucified, normally hanging over their head would be a copy of the charge for which they were condemned. All right, so hanging out, there, there would be this charge, there would be this list, there'd be this record of debt, there'd be this list of wrongs hanging over their head. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 14. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And so it's a debt that we owe God for our sins. And it's a charge list, it's an indictment against us. And we've all got one. We all have this list of charges against us. And I bet you can think of some. I know I can. And not just long ago. In the last few days. Charges against me. We all have this list of charges. And what Paul is getting at here is that when Jesus went to the cross, it's as if our list of wrongs, our charges, was hung over the head of Jesus and He suffered and He died in our place for those charges. Which just simultaneously... cuts me to the quick that I did that to my Savior. But then simultaneously fills me with hope and joy that He did that for me. That He died in my place. That He took my charges. That they were laid upon Him. And on the cross, He set them aside. He wiped them clean. He canceled the debt. The record of wrongs has stood, it's been expunged. 
It's gone. He took every ounce of the punishment I owe 2,000 years ago. Every ounce. And that means that there's none left. Jesus has paid it all. And since He's paid it all, all that's left then from the Father towards me is fatherly affections. For one, He's adopted into His family and now loves like He loves His Son. As Jesus took our sin and He gave us His righteousness. And God sees us that way now. This is what's so crazy about the cross and the gospel. We trade places. And so here's the deal. And this is a warm blanket for those of us in here who are believers and struggle with guilt and struggle with shame and struggle with regret or just continue to fall and just torment ourselves with our guilt over what we've done. If look right at me, if the highest court of the universe God has said that you are forgiven, then who are you to keep punishing yourself as if you're not? Are you stronger than God? Are you bigger than the cross? If you're not, and if He's forgiven you, then do the same. Hear the good news, friends. In Christ, in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. This is the best news you're going to hear today, tomorrow, or ever. And this is the point of the cross. John 3.16 sums it up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but we'll have eternal life. And that's why the cross, a device of torture, is now a device of hope. Let's pray. Father, to say thank you just seems so puny. And yet that's all we have. Because you have done it all out of grace. The, the curtain that separated people from the Holy of Holies in the temple has been torn. We, we have direct access to you now. We're not separated from you by our sin. Jesus has done away with it. He's canceled the record of debt. He's torn down the separation. And so, Father, even as we feel, feel, perhaps feel the weight of our sin and the cost of it that Jesus paid, may we also realize that we are fully and freely forgiven. And may the weight of our sin up against the fact that we're forgiven drive us to worship. Drive us to worship for what You have done. And drive us to serve You.
and to follow you more. Out of a heart of gratitude inflamed with who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, perhaps there's someone in here today who, like the centurion, might realize the gift of salvation that you offer and might take hold and receive it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.